If you would, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. It is good uh, that we have weekends like this, that we set aside time to remember those who not only served um, in our military but gave the greatest price, their lives, uh, for the sake of their country. And so we thank God for them. My great uncle died in World War II um, during battle. And so we all, we all probably have someone that we are remembering, whether they are family, whether they're friends, whether maybe you served alongside them uh, and they gave their lives. We are thankful to God for them. If you need a Bible, Exodus, uh, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere close by. Exodus chapter 7 begins on page 49 of that Bible. Before I read, I'm just going to read the first 13 verses. Before I read, I will say that we as elders had a conversation this week uh, regarding Gary and Mary Jane. I know Gary is one of our elders, but he's not here, so we talked about him, uh, which is why you don't skip elders' meetings, really. Uh, but um, in God's providence, as you know, if you're a member, we have room in our missions budget to actually begin new partnerships uh, to the tune of about $1,500 per month. And well, this last month, extra stay in South Africa has been quite expensive for Gary and Mary Jane. And so we felt like it was God's providence that all this money, we were not in, in partnership, so there is actually extra money that we will be able to help with the cost of this last month. So some of you I know are wondering, is there something we can do? Well, the Lord in His kindness has done something. He's provided money through just the delay in the beginning of partnerships that we might be able to cover their lodging and their transportation. Uh, and the transportation was actually the biggest part of that cost uh, for them. And so we praise the Lord for that. Amen? It's good that the Lord provides in that way. Now, Exodus chapter 7 I'll read the first 13 verses, and then we'll pray and dive in. This is what the Spirit says. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. 
Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to Your Word, and we know that in order to understand it, to believe it, to love it, to live according to it, You must work. And so we pray and ask for Your help. We ask Your Spirit to come and be our teacher. Open up our minds and our hearts to Your Word this morning. I pray that You will empower me, Your servant, to be faithful to Your Word as I preach to Your people. And may it all be done for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we continue our study, our journey through Exodus, and today's uh, task is quite ambitious. My goal is for us to think about the next four chapters of Exodus, 7, 8, 9, and 10. I was thinking about it. In the first seven weeks of this series, we covered four chapters. In the second seven weeks, we will cover 11. So, it's a long ways. Well, actually, maybe more than that. I don't remember. It's a long ways. We're running at a… We're run, the things are going… You're on the highway. Things are going by blurry, but we want to make sure we see everything uh, that we can along the way. Uh, obviously, we didn't read all of 7, 8, 9, and 10. That would have been about 20 minutes. I timed it this week to see how long would it take if I just read all of it. And it would have been about 20 minutes, and so uh, we're not doing that. And in fact, not even everything that can be said will be said this morning. But my prayer is that the spirit of these chapters will capture our hearts as we think about what God has done here. So before we dive in, let's remember where we are. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. God has called and set apart Moses to serve him, given him Aaron alongside him. In chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they say, let my people go on behalf of the Lord. And Pharaoh responds not only with a refusal, but with rage, and he amps up the cruelty on the people of Israel. Then in chapter 6, God assures his people, this is who I am. I am the Lord. I will do what I said I would do. I will bring you out. I will give you a new land. And then chapter 6 ends with God recommissioning Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh. And that brings us to chapter 7. And very neatly in the first five verses that we did read, we have a kind of preview of what's going to happen in all these chapters. Repeatedly, Moses and Aaron will speak God's word to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will not budge. God will then send these devastating signs, these plagues on Egypt, and yet Pharaoh's heart will remain unchanged, rinse and repeat. That's essentially what's going to happen. That's the basic pattern of 7, 8, 9, and 10 with some shifts here and there. And one way that we could have gone about this is to take each Uh, plague in turn, whether trying to do all of that in one time together or doing it one week at a time for the next 
nine weeks. But we're taking them together because these plagues basically have, these chapters basically have one message. We're leaving only the tenth plague. We're setting it aside. It will be handled on its own next week. Chad will be preaching next week. My son gets married Saturday, and I thought you might want a prepared preacher for Sunday morning. So, uh, so Chad will be uh, preaching Sunday morning. But the tenth plague is really the climax of all of these. So we will spend an entire morning on that. Now, many of you know the plagues. If we uh, took a quiz and we just, you know, gave you the ten blanks, you know, how many could you guess? Could you get them in the right order? That would be an interesting exercise. We're not going to do that. What I want to do is just refresh your memory, all right? So here's kind of a flyover of the plagues, keeping that pattern in mind. First, uh, the Nile River is turned to blood. The second plague, there are frogs literally everywhere. You go to open a pot in order to boil water, there are frogs in it. You go to make dough, there are frogs in your kneading bowl. Frogs everywhere. Third, the third plague is gnats covering people, covering animals. You ever been to South Georgia? You know there's a gnat line, and when you cross it, it becomes terrible. But it's nothing compared to what happens in Egypt. The fourth is swarms of flies bringing ruin. Fifth, there's disease that attacks the livestock of the Egyptians. Sixth are boils that cover animals and Egyptians. And even uh, Moses adds the detail that even, even the magicians are now suffering in their own bodies from these boils. Seventh, hail rains down with thunder and fire killing people and animals and plants and trees. Eighth, locusts cover the land and devour. And then ninth, deep darkness descends on the land. A darkness so dark, the Bible says it is felt. Now, as I said, these plagues carry one message, but what is it that we are to learn from frogs and flies, and boils, and locusts? What is it that we should walk away from these chapters with? What ought we to hang on to? Well, it is this, that God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail. God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail. Now, I'm going to say that several times over the course of our time together because every point, every heading that I have is prefaced with God's per power and purpose to save His people will prevail. So first of all, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail because God is sovereign. Now, if you don't know that word, sovereignty is essentially about power and control. It is about the exercising of power. It is about having control. So thinking about those two things, thinking about those things, the Bible tells us that God has absolute power and absolute control over every molecule in the universe at every moment. And so when we think that way and we think about these plagues, first we think about God's power. If you look at chapter 7, verse 4, you'll see that 
God is speaking to Moses and he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt. Now in the Bible, the hand, the arm are often pictures of power. Sometimes you can tell who the gym rat is, right? Because the hands and the arm are like, the arms are bulging, right? I mean, you look at me, you think that guy does not go to the gym. But, but in the Bible, the hand and the arm are the way to talk about power. There's even a moment when, when Jeroboam rebels against Solomon. It talks about how he lifts up his hand against him. He exerts his power in rebellion. And we actually have a preview of God's power in those first 13 verses, don't we? Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. Well, then Pharaoh calls in his guys and the magicians do the same thing by their dark arts. But what happens next? Aaron's staff swallows up all the other staffs, a kind of picture of the fact that in the end, God's power will prevail. Because as the story goes on, there comes a time very early when the magicians can no longer mimic what God is doing like they do here. Neither their power nor Pharaoh's power will be able to stand against God. And in the end, once the people are all the way out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, Moses will lead the people in singing, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. But not only God's power, God's control. In these plagues, friends, have you thought about this? Water, weather, disease, the animal kingdom, they all bow their knee in obedience to God. God sends the plagues as He wants and when He wants. He says, tomorrow I will do thus and so, and then thus and so happens. And then these plagues actually retreat as God wants and when God wants. Listen to the end of the, the, the plague of the frogs. Chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Listen, to, you hear that? He's putting the ball in Pharaoh's court. You just name the day. And that's when I'll ask the Lord, and he will do it. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Now that seems to be probably an understatement, doesn't it? I mean, as you think about heaps upon heaps upon heaps of dead frogs. But the fact is, is that God said, you name the day, and I'll prove that I am God by doing it that day. But not only do they come as He wants, not only do they leave as He wants, these plagues actually go where God wants them to go. So God begins to draw a line between the Egyptians and the Israelites. 
Let's just survey it quickly. Chapter 8, verse 22. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Chapter 9, verse 6. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Chapter 9, verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were was there no hail. Chapter 10, verse 23. The Egyptians did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Friends, God is sovereign in these plagues. His power is on display. His control is on display. He brings the plagues how and when and where and for how long it pleases Him to do it. Now, some people, I understand, now, one of the things you have to realize is that as, as you read this, maybe as you read this, read this the first time, or as maybe some of your friends read it, they read accounts of plagues like this and they think, this sounds more like science fiction than it does like history. And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you struggle with thinking about this actually happening. But what I want you to do is allow your mind to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, okay? The very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what I would say to encourage you is this. If you can believe that, that God created everything out of nothing, that every, then everything else that God does that is miraculous, everything else that is outside the norms of nature in the Bible is believable. You see, if Genesis 1-1 is true, and it is, then the laws of nature don't exist to govern God. God governs nature, and the laws serve Him and His purposes, so that while those laws of nature are the norm, that is the way creation normally occurs, at times God operates outside the norm to accomplish His purpose, to demonstrate His power, to save His people, to leave us in awe. Sun stands still. Diseases are reversed. The dead are raised to life. And we are left in awe because God is sovereign. Now, there's more to His sovereignty than just the activity of the plagues, but we'll come to that in just a moment. Secondly, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail, though Pharaoh's opposition persists. Pharaoh opposes God and His purposes and His people at every turn. Fourteen times in these chapters, Pharaoh's heart is described as hard. He will not listen. Even as the plagues continue and, and life in Egypt is disrupted and the infrastructure and economy are affected and agriculture is ruined and health is devastated and lives are lost, no matter what happens, Pharaoh's heels stay dug in. His heart is hard. And you know what? There are even times when it seems like Pharaoh may change his mind. If you just read them, and I, I hope that you do, there are times when 
he begins to bargain with Moses. Well, if you'll plead for the, with the Lord, then I'll do that. But every time he ends up backing out. Let's stay with the frogs here. Chapter 8, look at verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. But then look at verse 15. This is after the frogs are all heaped up. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. So you get what happens? The pain comes on, and Pharaoh says, I'll do anything. I'll do what the Lord says. And when the pain is lifted, Pharaoh very quickly says, no, I won't. Friends, doesn't that happen today? Don't people tend to do that today? The fact of the matter is, is that when life falls apart, God wants us to actually see that life is fragile and fickle and it's futile to have our hopes in this world. And so we get into these seasons and turn to God and say, we need you and want your help. We'll do anything. We will serve you. But as soon as the pain lifts, the heels dig back in. Just like Pharaoh. As soon as there's a little respite from the pain, people begin to think, I don't, need, I don't actually need God. I'm doing quite well now. Friend, don't do that. Don't, don't believe that the presence and help of God is just for the really awful times in life. But when things are going well, you can just set him over on a shelf to kind of pop him out when you need him. This is to see God as a genie. God, you can stay in the lamp, but when things get really bad, I'll rub the lamp if you could help me out. But as soon as the help comes, if you could just get back in your lamp, God, I've got a life to live. Don't harden your hearts, friends. That's what Pharaoh does. He does it with the flies. He does it with the hail. He does it with the locusts. He does it several times. Even sometimes adding, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. Isn't it true? That's what people, sometimes this is what people say. They'll start talking in terms of sin. Oh, I've sinned and I, I, I need the Lord. But in the end, it's, for Pharaoh, it's only worldly sorrow. Pharaoh is only concerned that his world be reordered. That he gets back to the world he wants. That's what worldly sorrow means. It means I'm only concerned for my world, for this world. I'm not actually concerned with what's happened between me and God. I'm just concerned with how things are messed up in my world. And so here is Pharaoh backing out when things ease up with worldly sorrow and continues to oppose the Lord with his heart And finally, in chapter 10, darkness descends, and Pharaoh's had about all he can take, beginning in verse 24 here. Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. 
Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. But you'll notice in all of these things, Moses doesn't budge. Moses didn't go to negotiate with Pharaoh. Uh, to, to paraphrase, God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. All right? He says, this is what you must do. So Moses responds, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let, him, let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, you'd think in all of this continual opposition that Moses and Aaron would get discouraged. How many times does it take of your friend shutting you down, sharing the gospel before you're like, well, lost cause, going on? Well, here they go, and the nation of Israel is on the line. And over and over again, they keep hitting a brick wall. And then they think there's a hole in the brick wall, but it just gets bricked right up. And you would think they would get discouraged, except that God had said to them in chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And that must have stuck in Moses' mind. Because as he records this later, you'll come to these places, I think there's about five of them, where it says that, that Pharaoh's heart is hard and he won't listen. And then there's a little phrase right after that that says, as the Lord had said. Here's where we find God's sovereignty all over again. God is in control. The opposition of Pharaoh is not a surprise to God. In the end, the opposition of Pharaoh isn't going to be of much use in trying to stop God because God is sovereign. Even Pharaoh's heart is in God's hands. God hardens it. Now, friend, when you hear that, don't think that what's happening is Moses is saying, oh, I really want to let the people go but God just won't let me. That is not what's happening. As you read it, sometimes it says what? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes God hardened Pharaoh's heart. One way you might think of it is the way that Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1. Here is Pharaoh with his heart stone cold against God, and what does God do but give him up to his evil desires? He hardens what is already hard. And, why, and remember, we said this a couple weeks ago, but if you weren't here, this whole business of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and God saying He will harden Pharaoh's heart is actually meant to encourage Moses, to remind him of who is actually in control here. Pharaoh is not in control here. God is in control. And as surely as God will harden Pharaoh's heart, God will defeat Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. You can count on both. But God's purposes will prevail even though Pharaoh's opposition persists. Thirdly, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail while He extends mercy to His enemies. Now, Pharaoh is going to be defeated. Egypt 
is going to be defeated. But through all of the judgment, all the devastation, all the disaster, all the darkness, God's mercy still shines through. The hand of mercy still extends even to His enemies, even when it is slapped away over and over again. Let me give you three pieces of evidence of God's mercy. The first is that the plagues end. Don't gloss over that. Don't gloss over the fact that none of these stay in perpetuity. They come to an end. Any time a temporal judgment like this comes to an end, it's an act of mercy. Now, these that I'm going to list aren't acts of temporal judgment, but any time pain is relieved, that's merciful. Any time health is restored, it's merciful. Any time financial loss is reversed, it's mercy. Any time chemo is effective, it's mercy. Any time surgery is successful, it's mercy. Any time a job is secured, it is mercy. You see, friends, the wages of sin isn't plague in this life. The wages of sin isn't even in the end just physical death to this body. The wages of sin is what the Bible calls the second death, an unending, unrelenting plague of God's judgment that will never be lifted. The fact that these plagues come to an end is actually merciful. Secondly, second piece of evidence... God restrains His power. God restrains His power. I mean, these plagues are awful, but did you know that they aren't as bad as they could be? God actually says as much in chapter 9, verse 15. He says this to Moses to say to Pharaoh, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God could have wiped them out with one stroke of His hand, one word from His mouth, one inclination of His will. But He hasn't. His judgment is restrained. I mean, we, in thinking about the devastation of these plagues, and then God saying, eh, this, this ain't even half of it. It should make us tremble at the reality of God's fullness of power in judgment. It should actually be part of what causes us, stirs us, compels us to be actively sharing the gospel with others. The judgment of God is not a bad day or a bad week. The judgment of God is unrelenting and unthinkable and horrific and forever. As we sang, though, this morning, and as Psalm 103 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Even when we do suffer temporal judgments in this life, even when we have to endure and we, when we must endure the consequences of our own sinful decisions in relationships, in our work life, in our financial life, in whatever life it is, The power of that temporal judgment is restrained. And that's mercy. 
The third bit of evidence is God actually offers mercy. There are times through this in chapter 8, verse 2, 8, 21, 9, 2, 10, 4, that God actually makes the plagues conditional if you refuse to let them go. If you refuse. Do you know what that is? That's mercy. Jesus uses the same kind of language in Luke 13. He says, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The very offer to repent and escape judgment is an act of God's sweet mercy toward us. But not only these conditional things are God's offer. God actually specifically offers mercy. Look at chapter 9. Here the hail has not yet come. And God says, Behold, this is verse 18, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from, that, from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. That is unbelievable. God offers for them to escape some of the pain of the judgment that is going to fall. And it goes on to tell us that those who actually feared the Lord and listened to His Word, they did it, and others didn't. They left their people out there. They left their animals out there. That's mercy, friends, when God offers for them to not suffer if they will just do what He's asked. So, in the midst of these plagues, I bring this out because I don't want us to miss the mercy. Yes, God is going to judge, but don't get the idea that that's all that's happening here. Because in the midst of bringing judgment, in the midst of speaking about it, in the midst of carrying out His purposes, God extends mercy even to His enemies. In a sense, all of us were there, weren't we? When we before we came to Christ. Before He saved us, when our hearts were turned away from Him, every good day, every health restored, every little thing, good things that happened, every breath that we breathed, mercy, when we were His enemies. Fourth, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail to accomplish God's goals. There are two of them. The first is that God's people will serve Him. God doesn't rescue His people from Egypt so they'll do whatever they want, live however they want, worship however they want, live by their own rules. He says repeatedly... Chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13. Let my people go that they may serve me. You see, they've been serving the wrong master long enough. 
It's time to serve the Lord. And friends, God saves us for that purpose. He doesn't... Look, sin is our master, and we serve at the beck and call of sin until the moment Christ sets us free. That's why Galatians 5 verse 1 says, uh, uh, God, uh, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Uh, uh, But don't go back to the yoke of slavery. In other words, uh, uh, it's this foolishness that the Israelites are going to be talking about when they're in the wilderness. Remember, they walk around and they say, oh, we had it so good in Egypt. Can't we just go back there? The very reason that God brings them out is to serve Him. Because, look, in our lives, serving the Master's sin is only going to lead us to hell. That's all it will do for us. The pleasures of sin are for a season, but the judgment on sin is forever. So one of the purposes of God in in saving His people is that they will serve Him. The second one is that the world will glorify Him. That's the big one. You see, this salvation is going to benefit Israel, but in reality, it's about God. It's about God's reputation, God's name, God's glory. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, God says this kind of thing multiple times, sometimes speaking of Israel, sometimes speaking of Egypt, sometimes just speaking of the world. He wants this to reverberate out. 717, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. 8, chapter 10, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 16, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. God saves so that He will be glorified, so that He will be seen as the Savior. In Psalm 106, looking back on the whole rescue from Egypt, the psalmist writes, yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. And friend, that's why God saved you and saved me. He's the one who sent Jesus to accomplish our redemption through His death and resurrection. He's the one who brought people into our lives to bring us the gospel. He's the one who awakened our hearts to Jesus. He's the one who opened our eyes. He's the one who gave us new hearts and faith. He's the one then who gets all the glory. Because it's all about Him. None of us are going to get to the end and gather around the throne with thousands upon thousands and myriads and myriads and myriads of people and talk about how smart we got during our lives. I finally figured it out. I made my way to Jesus. I pressed through the crowd and touched the hem of His garment. None of us are going to be saying things like that. You know what we're going to be saying? Salvation belongs to our God on His throne and to the Lamb. It belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. Look, I think songs of testimony about what God does in our life are wonderful often. 
But if you read the songs in Revelation, you will find that the glory of the Lord is the theme. It's all about Him. Friend, if you're a believer in Jesus, God saved you, and you're going to, there are immense eternal benefits for you. But those are not the end point. The end point is that God has gloriously demonstrated His mercy and grace and compassion and love and power in saving you. He and He alone will be in the spotlight. The whole cosmos will reverberate with His glory. And all will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But lastly, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail through God's servants. God uses Moses and Aaron all through His obedient servants. So if you notice in chapter 7, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded him. And that happens over and over again. They say what the Lord wants them to say. They do what the Lord wants them to do. They carry out his will. And much of that work is done through Moses and Aaron comes as lifting that weak little staff, that little nothing that can't do anything against an army. It's just a simple shepherd's tool, but through the obedience of his servants and the weakness of that staff, the power of God is unleashed and the people of God are saved. But friends, if you just keep reading the story, obedient Moses and Aaron, it doesn't take them long for them to become disobedient Moses and Aaron, does it? It doesn't take long at all. They're sinners just like the rest. And so full and final redemption isn't going to come through them. This isn't the end of the story. But there is one who's going to come. There's an obedient servant who will come, who is perfectly obedient, who is not a sinner like all the rest. You see, through Jesus Christ, God saves His people. Jesus is the obedient servant the one who is perfect in obedience. He did as God said. He spoke as God wanted him to speak. He carried out God's will perfectly. And then through the weakness of the cross, through the weakness of his broken body, through the weakness of his shed blood, through the weakness of his death, the power of salvation has been unleashed in the world to save all that will come to him by faith. All. You see, in Jesus, God's power and purpose to save His people will prevail. Friend, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ in this way? Are you trusting in Him? Do you know that He is the only one? That when He was lifted up on a tree, that He was the one that you must look to. He is the one you must come to. He is the one you must bow to. He is the one you must embrace. He is the one you must follow. He is the one you must serve. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. 
Are you trusting him? Jesus came to prevail, to save. And even today, hearts are still hard, aren't they? But here's the thing. Though hearts still resist him, nothing will stop him. So mom, dad, keep praying for that child. Man, woman, keep praying for your unbelieving husband or wife. Keep praying for that friend who keeps shutting you down. Don't throw in the towel on sharing the gospel. Because once Jesus goes to answer that prayer, once the Spirit empowers our meager offering of sharing the gospel, once Jesus sets out to save, nothing will stop him. In Jesus, God's power and purpose to save his people will prevail. Aren't you glad it doesn't, it's not dependent on you? Aren't you glad it's not dependent on your power? Aren't you glad it's not dependent on your purpose? Aren't you glad it's not dependent on your resolutions? Aren't you glad it's not dependent on you turning over a new leaf? Aren't you glad it's all in him? and not in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these chapters, for your power on display, for your sovereignty in the face of opposition, for your continued mercy to your enemies, for the glorious goals of having your people know you and serve you, and for your name and your renown to be lifted up, you to be glorified. We thank you for your obedient service, servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you for the reminder over and over and over again that no matter what opposition comes, your power, your purpose to save us will prevail. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.